Hello, and welcome to the WiseCast. I'm Max Rave, co-founder and CEO of WiseMonkey. In the spirit of sharing wisdom, we interview founders, leaders, and creative thinkers about why they pursued their passion, what challenges they've overcome, and what lies ahead in their path. We hope that you can learn from all these experienced people with their unique stories and see how you can apply some of these learnings in your own life. Today we're speaking with Chef Karen McCarthy, a pioneer in plant-based foods. Her particular specialty is creating cultured cheeses, just like regular dairy cheese, but only using plant-based sources like cashews and almonds. She's been creating these innovative products for 10 years now and is the co-founder of Blue Heron Cheese and Soil Restaurant. She has faced lots of opposition in her ventures, but has come out on top and gained rockstar notoriety in the food industry for her perseverance. Listen in and enjoy. Thank you for coming in, Karen. Um, sh- Chef Karen or Karen? We know it. You just call me Karen. <laughs> okay. Okay. That works. My name is Karen McCarthy, and I'm one half of the ownership team behind Blue Heron, uh, which is a plant-based v- vegan cheese making company and other products. And we also own a restaurant named Soil. Where are you from originally? Uh, I'm from a, a small town up the coast called Alert Bay. <laughs> It's um it's a small community on an island called Cormorant Island, maybe a thousand people. <laughs> Is that why you have one of your products called the Cormorant? Uh l- yeah, kind of a little bit. It's a bit of a reference to the hometown, um, but also because I really like the shoreline, and I really love the different birds that inhabit the shoreline. And cormorants are sort of not noticed a lot around here, but they're prominent in their own quiet way. Um, and it's been a bit of a surprise to find out how many people are longtime residents of Vancouver who don't know what cormorants are. <laughs> it's funny because you've probably seen them a million times and you still, a lot of people don't know what they are. Yeah. Yeah. I know people ask me all the time what <laughs> they usually try to pronounce the word. They usually think it, they try to guess what it means. And then I'm actually just surprised they're, they're not familiar with the bird. <laughs> you know, the only reason why I know what a cormorant is, is because I saw some on the sea bus in North Vancouver, and then someone said, oh, those are cormorants. And I was like, oh, wow, I've grown up here my whole life, and I still didn't know. So I'm a perfect example. I'm I'm part of the statistics, yeah. <laughs> I want to put it that way. Um, so uh, for a bit of context, um, Karen has been doing plant-based cheeses for practically, a, I mean, almost a decade almost by now. Almost a decade. Good Lord, yeah. yeah almost a decade. <laughs> almost a decade. Um, <clears throat> I actually connected with her uh, a little while ago. I think it was last summer we took the plant-based... Two summers ago now. Oh, God. Okay, (laughs) two summers ago. We took the plant-based cheese-making course, and it was a a massive eye-opener just in terms of what you can do with alternative materials and and, and other plant-based products. And and since then, I've been... You've been really killing it with Blue Heron. It's growing a lot, and and people are really getting onto the train. They understand the, the breadth of complexity and flavor you can create. And, and also now with your new restaurant, Soil, um, who, who is your partner again in that one? I, oh, it's the same. My business partner okay, is Colin right. Medhurst. Right, yeah. Colin. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. I'm glad to hear that. So I'm going to go through a couple like quick, uh, quick question here. So on a daily basis, what is a specific tool that you cannot live without? On a daily basis, a specific tool. My blend tech. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Literally, though, <laughs> um, yeah, my Blendtec for sure can't couldn't get through a day without that. Fair enough. I use my Blendtec pretty much every yeah. day. <laughs> <laughs> On your recommendation, also. Yeah. Um, beyond that, uh, 
let's let's dig into a little bit of your path. Um, you know, at, like I said before the show, a lot of entrepreneurship is is not necessarily pretty. It doesn't happen overnight, and people need to understand that even some of the big biggest successes took a decade to build. And I just want to go back a little bit in time to um, 2002. And from the articles I've read, other uh, interviews with you, you started cooking in 2002. Yeah, it, it was roughly around that time. Uh, it was around, it coincided sort of with my uh, going to university um, in terms of working professionally in it. There's been a weird thing that's happened over my life that I realized it was probably where I was going to end up anyway, but that's sort of a reflection trying to make sense of things. Uh, but yeah, 2002, I started working in kitchens doing prep stuff, prep cook stuff, and then moved into managing cafes uh, for a bit. Then it was back into kitchens and uh, baking, did a stint in baking. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I laugh about that because the baking just sort of um, really highlighted perfectionism issues for me. And so it, it actually elevated my anxiety a lot. So I felt I felt I needed to leave baking and pastry work because there was I don't think I, it would have we wouldn't have been a good long term fit. <laughs> Fair enough. Too, maybe too many rules. Yeah, the the rules aren't actually it's it's almost it's a bit of a weird thing. It's almost like being too concerned about the rules. And so some weird anxiety that I that I think's always been there just got exacerbated. Mm -hmm. And so cooking was it for me it was more freeing in the sense that I can rely on principles. And then there's a lot more multi-directional movement there. A lot of room for creativity. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Wow. And so that was a that was uh, 2002. That was here in Burnaby. Uh, yeah, I started basically when I was also attending SFU. Okay. So I started working around up there. I had done a couple smaller stints in other places when I lived up in northwestern BC, um, but nothing notable. <laughs> and it was it was just the things you do when you're looking for work. <laughs> what was the like, did you have like a sort of goal in the end or what was like the end game for you at that time? Because a lot of times people have this idea of like where they want to be, what, what it's going to look like. And then once they get through that whole journey, they realize, whoa, this is a completely different thing. Yeah. Uh, so in 2002, I thought I was going to become a professor. <laughs> oh, really? That was my trajectory. I've, I've never not loved food. I've always cooked. I've always wanted to feed people. I've always wanted to be deeply... I taught myself how to make jams. I've taught my, like, I've always been deeply involved, but I never saw, thought of it as a path for myself. Even when I started taking on the work in the kitchens, um, I still thought cooking was just what I was going to do until I became a professor. <laughs> that didn't happen. <laughs> was there a sort of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Was there a sort of like mindset that changed for you and in, in that path like what created that change or that that shift in direction that's such a good it's a good question because it wasn't obvious right away it was something I was really driven for it was something I wanted very badly it was something I very much wanted to do I was very clear about what I wanted to end up researching um but the more time I spent in cooking there was I guess it was more of the subconscious started to change um, and then in 2010, I took a trip to the UK to meet a prospective supervisor for graduate work. And I, it wasn't an obvious thing. It wasn't like, okay, that's it. No, I'm not doing it. It was more, it was subtle. 
it was a quiet shift. It's just once I had that interview and had a great conversation and felt like, yep, yep, we all said yes in the meeting. And when I left, I just knew I wasn't going to go back. And I don't know where that happened or what shifted. <laughs> but I knew. I knew that was, I, I just, maybe I needed to just do that interview process to feel like, okay, I know I could if I wanted to. I don't really know. But something shifted and I didn't. I didn't do it. <laughs> but I did then really deeply commit myself to being very serious about the cooking side of things. Very interesting. Wow. It's sometimes you need to explore the avenue to then really know for sure that it's just something that might not be the right fit. Yeah, it, and it's it was hard. There's a lot of things that happen when you're in academia for a long time. There's um you, you there's a state of mental burnout you reach and I th and it's and some people overcome it and continue many of my friends did. But I had a moment in a library looking at all the books. And all I could think about was how many words, how many unnecessary words are being published all the time. And I just thought, why? And my words don't matter. So do, like, does it matter that I have this thing I want to work? What offering is this? This isn't, I have nothing really meaningful to offer. More words to fill up more span than I just, right. I just. It was just I couldn't unsee that moment in my head, and I just walked away. <laughs> no, fair enough. I mean, eventually, you know, it's better to know. It's better to know that you're really not meant for something, or it's not meant for you yeah. early on, than than kind of forcing it to happen for yeah. for longer than it needs to be. There, there's still moments of doubt though, where I wonder if I did it, if I walked away because I was just afraid and didn't, you know, chickened out sort of. There's probably also an element of that, if I'm to be really frank. I, I didn't allow myself a lot of conscious thought around it. But I also knew that when I made that, once that decision became embodied, it became really easy for me to pursue what I wanted to do in cooking. And that felt really clear to me afterwards. Like that felt really obvious to me. Yeah, so maybe you need, you need to do that exercise to really understand exactly what you're looking for. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> wow, that's really cool. So uh, shifting gears a bit. So when you started doing the cheeses, you were still being, you were still chefing yeah. and cooking, et cetera. And it was kind of like part of your offering that was available and, and only a small, I'm going to assume kind of minute portion of really the, the bigger picture. Yes. When did that start becoming something that you knew was going to be part of the future in terms of dialogue, in terms of food offerings, in terms of the whole plant-based movement, when did you really realize, like, you know what, hold on a sec, this cheese thing is really where we can make some some damage? It, again, it was, I, I'm an immersive person, so, and, and I like to solve problems or look at questions deeply. So sometimes there's not an overarching uh, mission, per se, for me, as much as it's like, I'm not finished answering this question, so I need to look at it more deeply. Uh, but I, but that said, at the same time, it became pretty clear by early, mid-2014, yeah, even while I was still at Gray's, that this was going to be a thing. Um, we, I, when I was still the executive chef at Gray's, we did a season in the Vancouver Farmer's Market System with my early cheeses. Um, the owner of Gray's and I had had a kind of previous chat about 
whether or not we would develop this as an, you know, as an extension of what we were doing at Gray's at the time. Um, so it became pr pretty clear pretty, uh, pretty early on that this was going to be bigger than what I thought I was doing initially. <laughs> um, we had, I mean, the Globe and Mail had done an article, I think it was either 2014 or early 2015, about vegan cuisine moving into its own and not just being sort of a subset of other things. And they shot our cheeses for the, the cover picture of that article. Um, and then that same year, I was asked by New Society publishers to write a book, and that's when it really started to crystallize that that this was something that was <laughs> about to become, quite, not just for me, but like about to become a new force in the food industry. Wow, that's really cool. So what made you first get the idea? Like, what did you even read about it at the, the very, very beginning? Because there's very, I mean, you're one of the pioneers, and so, you know, kind of like what wise monkey did it's like there's no manual on how to make it yeah we have to just go try it so for you was there some yep. sort of historical information anything to kind of give you an indication of how it works other than just like literally just food chemistry well so there's two things well a bunch of things but two in particular one i knew i wanted to offer my one of my standing approaches in food is I want people to have an experience that they might not self-choose. So when I wanted to offer a sharing board, I wanted it to be by pairing things in ways that would allow them to have an experience they might not choose in terms of texture, flavor, those things. Um, and so I wanted very badly to have a some sort of cheese-type item on the board, but I didn't like what was commercially available. And I didn't like the recipes I was finding online. During during that online search, I did come across Miyoko Shinner's uh, first book, the art, her artisan vegan cheese making book. So I did take a look at that, but I didn't spend, beyond a couple recipes, I didn't spend a lot of time in it because they also weren't offering me what I was particularly looking for um, in terms of depth of explaining how materials work, why they work a certain way. And I, so I started looking at dairy cheesemaking books and dairy cheesemaking methodologies and doing looking at different places to get that information. And that's when, it, that's when it occurred to me that I wanted to know much more about how, what microbes did and what digestive enzymes do and that process. And that, yeah, there was like, I went looking to see if someone else had answers. I went looking to see, well, is there a, is there a, is there a cooking school that teaches this stuff? Is there, you know, some person that's holding course? There was nothing available for that. There was no, there was no centers of learning to find that information. So I had to, I had to, I had to go and find information that could fit into the hypothesis I set for myself. Yeah, that's the. I think a lot of the time invested in that would be considered a pioneering cost, of uh, of really, you know, kind of breaking trail and then yeah. and then regurgitating that information in a way that's digestible to you know, amateur people like myself that are looking to just do something at home? I guess I guess in this weird way, even though I left academia, something about all those years I spent in it didn't leave me because that part felt easy for me. That part of doing the research, understanding it, and then churning it out in a different way, that's something you do all the time in academia that you have to then turn around and make your information receivable in some way. So that that part hasn't felt difficult or like any like it it's, to me I'm so used to doing it it hasn't felt like a cost 
so when other we've had now some other uh well like the Richardson Research Center at the University of Manitoba has reached out to see if they could do R&D for us and I'm like but no no that's that's my pocket. That's my job. <laughs> <laughs> no thanks. <laughs> like I'll like if I want to send you something to do analysis for me, sure. But I, no, <laughs> I don't. I don't want to give that part up um, because I find it's in that in deep process that you come to really understand both yourself and why you're doing this thing. And without it, I don't. I, I, I know that I guess there's people that say I want to put a food product out there and they hire people to sort of do that for them and they put their faces on it. I personally don't really get that. <laughs> I don't I don't understand that. I, I mean, it's like with you guys with Wise Monkey, you guys found there was something you cared about changing in a, the way something was happening in the food system and doing something with a part of that whole process that nobody else does. Nobody was going to, you don't do that if you're just someone trying to put your name on something. I don't think. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. No, that's, that's really interesting. So there's a lot of parallels between what you're doing and, and what Wise Monkey's doing mm-hmm. in the sense that we are kind of pioneering a new, a new avenue for, let's say, an, you know, an alternative for the existing um, available products. The, the ultimate parallel at the end of the day is that we've applied traditional tea crafting techniques to a different leaf mm-hmm. to the coffee leaf instead of a tea leaf and in your situation you're applying the same like traditional cheese making techniques to just a different medium which would be nut milks and and etc so mm-hmm. it, it it's funny because like especially in the beginning we got so much flack from all like the purists in the tea industry saying that we can't use the word tea Oh yes. Which which I'll touch which we're this is where we're <laughs> yeah, going. Yeah, yeah. So we were told we couldn't use the word tea. We were saying that we were basically like blasphemous and all this stuff. And it's like, oh my God. First of all, tea was a word that was uh basically co opted out of Asia and pushed across the world as a boiled leaf. Mm-hmm. Like straight up, that's what it was. But then it became this uh this term for just Camilla Sinensis, which is like traditional green and black tea. And we're trying to tell people it's like well you look at like an electric car a gasoline car a diesel car they're all cars so it gets you from a to b you have seats in it and you have a steering wheel if you look at tea it's a leaf that has been dried or crafted and dried and then boiled that's tea I mean, there's really nothing there's no two ways about it and then the thing with the cheese now is what blows my mind is this whole fiasco that happened in cool. February, uh, and I'll give I'll yeah. give the the audience uh, the the listeners a bit of a recap. So basically, uh, February seventeenth, CFIA said, "Hey, uh, we got we get we're getting more complaints that um, vegan cheeses can't use the word cheese because it's supposed to be a dairy based product." And like, what was your reaction when you saw <laughs> that? Because I'm sure it's not the first time, but this was the first time where it was like the CFIA, which is like yes. the uh, the Canadian or, like the Canadian FDA, basically, yeah. telling you you can't use the word cheese anymore. Uh, wow, there's there's so much. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna tell that part, and then I want to go because the parallel you draw between the tea and the history and the change of something is really important in in this shifting food paradigm we're in. Um, so we actually, we, we received the complaint from the CFIA in our inbox in January. Um, and so we, we were informed that a, a complaint had been lodged saying that we used the word cheese on our labels, that we couldn't do that. So I'd quickly fired back with, 
but we don't use the word cheese in our labels. Here's copies of our labels. So then the CFIA wrote back and said, well, you can't use it in your marketing. You can't use it in your online sources. And so then engaged a bit of back and forth around, well, these several companies that are sort of in our field use the word this way. I know they are all CFIA approved. Can we do this thing? And I presented some language, namely 100% dairy-free, plant-based cheese. And it became a lot of, well, no, it's not up to us to tell you what to do. You have to form your own language. And I'm like, well, but you're, but you need to approve our language. And if you won't approve our language, we're now in a loop. So they would send me the links to look at. During during that, not I, basically around the same time we got the complaint, I had written just on my own Instagram account, not even the company one yet. Just I didn't even mention the CFIA. I just made a couple comments about how emotional the word cheese is and that we weren't allowed to use it. And then that's when Alexandra Gill from the Globe and Mail reached out to us and um, and wanted to write a story about it for the business section. And February 17th is when the story in the Globe and Mail came out. <laughs> that was, we call it Cheesegate now. <laughs> Cheesegate. Oh, my God. Um, because it just was so crazy how viral, how intense it was for about three weeks. And and it was really also incredibly distracting from the just the work we needed to do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> you still have a growing business to take care of. Yeah, so it was it was I was I think Alexandra was surprised as well by how how quickly that went as broad and how broadly it went because um, we've had media approach us from across the country, parts of North America, parts of Europe. <laughs> so, I mean, because the same conversation about the use of words is a very real thing in the EU right now, in addition to us and, you know, over here. So I know the EU was really, I mean, people in the UK in particular were looking at what was happening here. Um, at the end of our particular, we're not finished dealing with the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, but for the time being, the language they've agreed that we can use after, um, and I have to say kudos and thanks to so many people that supported us because not at our request, um, but many, many people sent in letters and put pressure on different parts of the regulatory chain. Um, so the CFIA Ottawa reviewed our case and sent language back to CFIA BC saying that we could use 100% dairy-free plant-based cheese terminology. Wow. <laughs> Same one I asked in like email number three, but you know, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Um, I'm, pr I'm, not, I'm not angry or frustrated with the CFIA. They have a job to do in terms of regulation. They don't create regulations. They respond to the circumstances and how they relate to existing regulation. So what's really clear is that regulatory change is required. Like something has to meet this changing food paradigm. Um, I don't know, did, did the CFIA give you guys a hard time around the use of tea in, as a word? So no, we didn't have a hard time using the word tea just because, and actually I wanted to ask, mm -hmm. I wonder who was the one to pioneer the word herbal tea because yeah. herbal tea, technically speaking, is not to the purest, is not considered tea from Camilla sinensis plant, which is, yeah. again, traditional tea. So uh, we never had an issue with the word tea. Um, CFA was more concerned with uh, the fact that it's just the coffee leaf in general is just a new thing for Canada, even though it's been around for up to 1300 years in Ethiopia. It's mm -hmm. actually one of the, it's the original way the coffee plant was ever consumed was just the dried leaf 
was consumed by Ethiopian monks and and just like farmers that would see that those, these plants are literally just in the wild at the time. So the only time anyone ever ever roasted the beans was in the 15th century in Egypt, and then the Europeans caught on later. So the, it's funny because the original way to drink the coffee plant is the tea from the leaf. And we're coming in with like this brand new thing, you know, according to Health Canada and CFIA. Mm -hmm. And even after submitting like, like stacks of documents of like historical references and like Ethiopian books talking about it and all this stuff, they're like, oh, well, we need like recipes and we need like all these things. It's like, dude, this is written in a dialect in Ethiopia from a particular province from the birthplace of Arabica coffee. Yeah. And you're telling me you need like a recipe book that talks about it to prove that this won't kill someone when you drink it. It's just like, it, it was blowing our minds. And sure enough, like after getting passed around to every single staff member in the CFAA offices across Canada, like six months later, we get an email and like we hadn't launched yet. So it was still like, we were still doing a lot of the, the back end mm -hmm. kind of foundational work. Six months later, they're like, oh, yeah. Um, so we finally like came to a consensus <laughs> and it's, you're good to go. And it's like, oh, my God, how many hours did we spend arguing about this and like sending you like faxes and like all these. I don't know how many countless emails and phone calls and half the stuff we were doing it while we we're still in Nicaragua. So it wasn't exactly easy as like turning on your laptop and just, you know, or yeah. picking up the phone. It's like everything was like Skype on bad Wi-Fi, et cetera. So it was just yeah, we had our own kind of challenges. But again, you know we're we're happy that they do that job because in the states they don't have the pre-market audit mm -hmm. meaning that they don't screen things before they launch and that's why you have so many um bad products that get launched in the u.s that that harm people mm -hmm. and it doesn't necessarily happen in canada at the same time you know on the flip side it has that sort of effect of stifling some innovation um but at the end of the day most of the innovation that is really worth it or worth pursuing whoever is going to be pushing that foundation, that innovation through, they'll find a way through CFIA and it'll end up working. And if it doesn't work, then maybe that person doesn't have the right passion or the product just doesn't have any sort of real legs or, or, or whatever it may be. So it's kind of like a good filter. Um, you know, like you said, you know, we don't hate the CFIA or anything. Yeah. Obviously they have a job to do and they're, and they're pretty good at it. It's just sometimes even for something simple, it's a bit of a headache, but what's, what is, what is government without headaches, right? <laughs> so that's just part of, part of the journey. It is just part of the journey. I think you made a, I think what you said about the impact on innovation and not even necessarily being a negative thing overall though, that it, in terms of its filtering effect, because I think in this, in this, industry that we're in and especially if we're going to be people doing things that maybe that others aren't doing you really have to learn how to withstand <laughs> a lot of different things and that and that might not even be the biggest force that you have to learn how to withstand so I think if if something like like a bit of pressure coming from the CFIA undoes you then <laughs> you might need to look at what why you're in the industry <laughs> that's a really good point we've had more frustrations with <laughs> distributors and retailers and and, uh, and all the other links in the chain than we have with the cfia to be yeah. honest so that's actually a very a very realistic um a very realistic point to make um so <laughs> so shifting gears like after all this now, now that you have um, soils up and running, you have blue, her uh, blue heron, is it creamery is officially, you changed the Just name, right? Just blue heron. Just blue heron, yeah. right. Yeah. So now blue heron's running um, adjacent to the restaurant. After this whole path of starting to cook in 2002 to now having 
your own setup locations and a full menu and and your your pretty your notoriety is huge in Vancouver now. People are, are definitely aware. Um, what has been the kind of main learning or like a really consistent thing that you found throughout this whole journey where you're like, you know what, that always rang true of like that particular notion or that idea or that mental exercise always worked. What was something you really learned throughout all this time that you'd like to share with anyone else who's starting a business? It's not going to be sexy or exciting sounding. Um, but honestly, the thing for me that has been true about, because it's all been, there's been so many fast, sudden growth spurts and lots of intensity in the last few years around this. I have found that maintaining calmness, like not getting too emotionally excited on either end of that scale, not getting too happy or too down. To, happiness is very fleeting and I don't, kind of trust that sensation when it comes so I always try to seek to ground any of those feelings what regardless of what end of the the roller coaster they're on that is something that I cannot agree with more um and we've had a lot of episodes where people talk about certain learnings and everything but no one has mentioned that part yet and I think yeah if I were to answer that question on our end I would say like everything takes three times longer than you think at least. And then on top of that, it's definitely, it's going to be a roller coaster and like, don't let the extremes, uh, dictate your, your kind of day to day. And there are so many times where like Arno and I, uh, my co-founder, we have like this, this win, you know, on this week or like we get this great news in the morning and we're like, Oh my God. Yes. Like we're finally making, you know, like we're finally moving the needle. We're finally making real progress and like starting to feel confident about what we're doing and knowing that the strategy is starting to work, et cetera. And then literally an hour later, you just get like this completely unexpected, terrible news. And you're like, Oh my God, like it's over, you know? And you're just like, how are we ever going to survive this? It's like every single day you feel like one minute you're on top and the next minute you're literally at the bottom of the barrel. And it's, it's kind of funny. Like I've mentioned this to friends too, like similar thing. It's like, if you're starting a venture, you're going to have really good days and really bad days. And it's almost like, I don't know. I don't know if this is the right word, but it's almost like depressing to think that like you can't let your happiness get too ahead of you when you have good news happen, because immediately before you know it, you're going to get kicked in the face with, (laughs) with something that you have no idea was about to happen. I think I don't find it depressing. I mean, I think (laughs) I don't, which is going to sound so weird. Um, I think it's true, but I, for me, I think it's, I think, extreme emotions frighten me anyway. <laughs> like I feeling too excited usually means I'm thinking like, why are my adrenal glands firing off like this? What is going <laughs> on? Like what biochemical reaction is happening? And then I work really hard to subdue it, to just bring it back into place. But it's the same on the other end. Like I don't, I don't try not to let the, the darker, the heavier stuff take me down into the, the rabbit hole either. Um, maybe it's been all the years in the food industry working as a chef and being under review all the time because <laughs> it never stops. People have stuff to say all the time. I've had I've had those days. I've had I've had the way up highs and the deep down lows and all of that stuff. But I think the thing that I've learned is that trying not to let that be the thing that controls what I do every day or how I work with Colin to think about the future direction of the company or what decisions we need to make, those can't be the things that dictate 
what is happening. Yeah. And I find it's personally, I find so much more relief not letting it be the deciding factor. Yeah. So we've spoken to different mentors about this too. And, and there's lots of literature out there as well is, is kind of letting the, the kind of day-to-day dictate how you feel. And then if you end up doing that, you make decisions out of fear or you make decisions out of overconfidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that is, uh, is definitely a huge wake up call is especially once you start making some mistakes that cost you time and money and everything else. And you realize, you know, we were in the state of mind where we thought we were kind of invincible and, and we ended up just completely screwing up. And so it's, it's something that has been resonating a lot, um, as, as we've grown as well. So that's, that's a really good point. So I, I thank you for sharing that. Thank you. It's just, <laughs> it's just what it helps me get up every day because there's, it's never going to change the amount of work you have to do or the, the challenges you face. And once you're working with so many different moving pieces in this chain, then you have to be willing to accept that some of it you can't control and you have to be able to respond to it with a degree of like, reasonableness yeah. so. and i i am by you know by uh genetics i suppose <laughs> or by you know nurture nurture and nature i'm more of a emotional person um i get really stoked when we have like really good news and I, and at that point i'm like unstoppable and i can just like i can actually work harder and harder yeah. if we get good news i just work like crazy hard and then it's awesome and then as soon as we get bad news i'm just like so angry that it happened and i you know, I, I, I beat myself up and I, I beat ourselves up in terms of like our company, like, Oh my God, we should be better than this, et cetera. So it's just, it's like, it's a really good mental exercise to be like, you know what, you can't get too excited and you can't get too upset. It's, it, it's hard though. Holy crap. When your whole life is depending on this one this, project. Yep. I think, I think it's like any, like being in a business partnership. I think, I think if one of, if, if we talk about the, the types of personalities in my, our company, I think my par- my business partner probably shares a bit more in common with your responses <laughs> to those things than I do. Um, <laughs> but that's not a bad thing in some ways because it gives us stuff to bounce off of. Um, because I'm motivated by different things, I think that's why it, it... I'm not saying it doesn't impact me. I'm just... Because I'm motivated by internal problem-solving desire versus external other things. I think that's, it provides me with a small amount of room there and buffer. But I I still, if something doesn't go right, I still feel that flash of anger or that flash flash of frustration for sure. I'm more nervous about the joy because I'm more nervous about decision-making based in overconfidence than I am around fear-based. Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) because I've witnessed it a lot in in the industry in different ways and I've seen the overconfident decisions may do a lot more long-lasting damage than the than the fear because you tend to make smaller decisions when it's fear-based right and the great big ones yeah the food industry is really tough especially the restaurant industry um 50 percent of restaurants don't survive beyond year two I think yep so it's uh it's definitely a tricky business and I can see how that applies um so now going forward what's your goal in the next 12 months and then 
and then like five plus years. Where do you want to kind of take this and what's your media and then kind of long term goal? So the first 12 and this is great because we've been spending a lot of time this year focusing on those questions. So you're ready for the quiz. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this um, this this 12 months, our big focus is on expanding our manufacturing capacity. So we're currently in an active site sh- site search. Uh, looking for spaces. Um, word on the street has gotten out, so realtors are sending us information now pretty regularly. So we have some prospects there to start looking at. Um, there's a couple other things that are buzzing around that particular idea. I just can't really speak about those sure. right now. Yeah. But if if some things work out in certain directions, then our capacity to do that is going to be realized a lot sooner than later. And I'll be very grateful for that because we've got so much demand right now and we can't meet it. And I'd like to be able to meet it and resolve some other issues that, that we have. Um, and I would just really like to be able to expand our R and D capacity because we have some other bigger goals within five years. We'd love to be fully shipping across North America. That'd be just part of what we're regularly doing. Um, we're, exploring and interested in talking about licensing agreements in other jurisdictions. So whether it be we license a package of methods, let's say four cheeses, that if somebody was in Europe or South America and we had a partnership that we license and train them to do it, but not do export-import involvements. And then I, there is... I do the real dream (laughs) for me. There's two real dreams, but the the one of them cheese related is to, to fully have, to have a fully veganized line of cultures that do a number of diversity of cheeses the way there is in the dairy cheese making realm and be selling, selling cultures to other vegan cheese makers. Oh, wow. Okay. So having more of a kind of a, almost like an ingredient supply or or be a lab. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. You have your own lab. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it is very much a science. Uh, it's an art and science for sure, but science is a, is, is a pretty core component of it. And going back to that, I was just thinking, you said earlier that the pastry world, you kind of were like always, almost like too stuck in that box and it was like everything had to be so perfect. Do you find the freedom of fermentation is like the perfect way to always explore something and there are no rules at all? Well, there are rules in fermentation. So principles and rules are kind of the same thing. Or I mean, I mean, in terms of what people are looking for in a final product. Uh, Yes. Yeah. I think, I think why I ended up preferring the microbiology of fermentation versus sort of the codified, this is how it must be done of pastry is that and that even though I know understand that there's shifting and and that there is I find that in fermentation there's it feels like it's more connected to this idea of biodiversity overall so that if something's not exactly the same as it was the last time that's actually okay and maybe even desirable versus this pastry seems to sort of reflect this desire for a level of consistency that is almost unnatural in some weird way and I and that just seemed to stimulate anxiety around perfectionism for me some a little bit like working in coffee did around like the exact right temperature to roast the bean at and all of that and then getting too concerned about that for me fermentation means you're talking about a whole different level of the world and it has its own 
changes and so you have to work with that and you can't always make it do what you want and you can't and then you have to learn how to appreciate that and I think that offers value in a way that I didn't find for myself in pastry. <laughs> what I like about the whole world of fermentation and and obviously the the plant-based cheese making uh, kind of aspect is that there's so much room for creativity in the sense that like I find it empowering where now instead of like before uh, I started following a plant-based diet, I would go and buy cheeses and it's like, you know, 10 bucks a tiny piece of cheese, especially in North America. It's so expensive Mm -hmm. and you're always stuck with like the same kind of things. Like unless you want to go for something that's like really unique and kind of different, then it's going to be double the price or whatever maybe. And then you have a few people over and it's already done. (laughs) And, you know, being a, you know, quote unquote millennial, we're not exactly like, loaded and so blowing like 15 bucks on a small wheel of cheese for three four people it's like okay well i can't do this all the time whereas taking this new approach where you know you can do uh, nut milks at home so easy and pretty cheap you can do plant-based cheeses pretty cheaply as well like the ingredients are not that expensive mm-hmm. i find that it it gives at least it gives me I, I can't speak for everybody else but it gives me that feeling of empowerment where we can kind of control our food system. We know where it's coming from because we made it. Yeah. Instead of always relying on what this label and this retailer is telling us about where this is from and why it's like, you know, clean, safe, uh, ethical, et cetera. So I just, I find that the whole, uh, that whole world of fermentation and cheese making is opening myself and other people up to, and things like kombucha, similar thing. It gives people the idea of, hey, we can actually make the food that we consume instead of having to always go out and just purchase it. Yeah, I I mean, I guess I'm glad that people are caring about... I mean, that was just how I grew up. Um, that was just part of living on a tiny island. Um, and, and, like, and and frankly, I, I come from a lower socioeconomic class than a lot of people that I know. Um, but frankly... I grew up, if you were the poor kids on my island, you had the brown bread, not the white bread, and you had the, you grew the food in your yard. <laughs> so I, to me, I'm really glad to see it. I, I um, there is a, there's a weird sense of privilege around it now, though, which didn't exist for me growing up that I find um, interesting and confusing all at the same time. Is it kind of glorified in a sense? I think, well, I think so. And I, I'm not saying it shouldn't be the case, but I think when we're looking at who is doing this and why they're doing it and then what's happening around that, there's, there's less a concern about food justice than there is around placating a certain class of North Americans. I don't know, maybe a little so bit. It's more about Instagram than it is about doing good. Maybe, maybe <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't, I don't, it's not an either or thing, right? Of course, of it's course. It's not at all that clean, I don't think. Um, but I do find it really interesting that, that, because um, I've had, I've, as teaching the courses I teach, I've had a chance to engage a lot of people now. Um, I've taught over 300 students now at this point. And so finding out who's doing it and why and and getting to have those conversations is that of that chain, the food justice component is the least discussed component really? of the DIY and the uh, home use. And But people are really open to it at the same time, I found, when, when the conversation's present. But I find it's, it's sort of like the zero waste thing as well. Like there's right. less of a – there's a – 
idea of environmental concern, but not within the social justice perspective. So people are buying metal yeah. straws and not realizing that they're still using plastic for everything else, and they feel like the social justice warriors kind of thing. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I, th I mean, I think we're all we're humans, so I don't. So I don't. I'm not wanting to say anything like this with judgment. Yeah, of course. I just think it's going to be rife with conflict because humans are complicated and. It, some, but we do seem because probably because of social media to like when something becomes a trend we don't always think super critically about the shift <laughs> like yeah. we, we jump on it and then then the then the reflection occurs so maybe i think it's just the pace of that happens more fast and more quickly now i mean i'm thrilled i'm thrilled to see people caring more about doing these things at home and therefore understanding maybe a bit more about the food system uh I find that a lot of people also find out that a lot of this stuff is actually quite a lot of work to do at home, though. Not everybody has 12 hours in a day to do all the food that they would need to sustain themselves for a week, right? Like, or if they're, especially if they have families and stuff like that. It, it was a bit different when people grew their food at, like when a lot more people used to have food growing gardens and they would grow a good large part of their staples for their immediate family and maybe share with neighbors. But there was less, they weren't all going off to do 10, 12-hour jobs a day. Right, of course. So I think it's, I think we're living in a, a weird time right now. <laughs> and no question we're divorced from the food system in so many ways that we don't think about where things come from, how they got there, why, why is something cheap? We shouldn't necessarily celebrate that. <laughs> when we see something that's cheap, we shouldn't necessarily think that's great. That doesn't necessarily mean a good thing. You know, it's funny. We've we've had people, um, you know, we do events or demos at stores, et cetera, especially early days, who say like, oh, your tea is so expensive. Like, it's just way too expensive. Like, what? why is it so expensive? When I have like a regular box of tea that's like $3 for 20 tea bags, mm -hmm. and ours is like, you know, 11, 12 bucks, and it's like, well, realistically, even at $12 per cup, it's still cheaper than any coffee that you'll buy. And on top of that, you know the farmer is coming from, and you know that it's, he's actually getting paid directly and not going through a co-op and not going through another consortium of sticker labels, you know, that all have offices in New York. Mm -hmm. They have to pay some accounts receivable person in New York 10 grand a year so that you can use their logo. And people are like, oh, well, okay, well, I don't know if that really justifies it. And it's like, well... If you're not if you're not willing to you know to at least try or, or, or at least see the the value in that then maybe you're just not the consumer we're looking for and that's just all it is and you know there's no hard feelings whatever mm -hmm. you know we've heard a lot of worse things that <laughs> people tell us <laughs> so it's not a, it's not a huge deal but um, there's definitely a component there where the awareness is definitely a lot higher now and I feel like it's being led by the plant-based movement just because they kind of lifted the veil on on, on other major industries. And then, and then that kind of gives everyone this kind of critical understanding and, and this critical eye to everything else they're buying now. And so it's, it's all for the better at the end of the day, um, even though there may be, you know, the odd person here and there that's really jumping on it for the, for the sake of, you know, having social approval or vanity mm -hmm. or whatever you want to call it. So for better or for worse, it, it's, it's really something that is, is uh, going to be good for the future. Oh, I, I 100% agree with that. <laughs> Um, awesome. So if there's anything you want to kind of shout out to, uh, anything that's coming up right now with the restaurant or with the cheese company? 
actually that's there are there is a couple things we um we have, we're doing a collaborative dinner uh coming up on may 2nd with urban leaf uh well they were called urban leaf catering now it's called Ur- urban leaf foods um where it's it's a zero waste dinner so we're collaborating with a few others our focus is on i mean soils focus in general is about using minimum creating minimal food waste so the entire dinner is focused on on that idea so we're going to be getting a few things from odd society spirits but they're taking the bottles back when we're done um all our foods are going to be sourced directly uh myself and katie ann one of the chefs from urban leaf will be sourcing our product produce directly from farm farmers um and then even uh marissa from eat eat the dishes is going to we're going to be using some of her products highlighting edible dishware (laughs) and and a menu item or two uh focusing on uh, single-use items that aren't don't have to rely on any part of the recycling waste system. So that's happening cool. May second. Uh, tickets are available. Uh, May eleventh, we're doing uh, a wine dinner with uh, Ursa Major Winery, who's they're quite proud to be consider their wines fully vegan, plant-based, and so they're doing a brand relaunch. So we're doing another a wine dinner, wine pairing dinner with them, and then Mother's Day. I guess we'll be doing Mother's Day brunch. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> That sounds fun. Oh, sign me up. <laughs> yeah, there will be some. There will be a few good nights coming up there. So that's wicked. Well, I'm really glad to see that uh, blue heron and soil are are still growing and and killing it. And it's cool to see that you're going to be focusing on creating a bit more of uh, like a supply because obviously the demand is is very high right now. Yeah. Um, I think I saw in the news recently a 1.1 billion dollar loss last year in the U.S. for for dairy milk sales. So you can see the the yeah. effect is very much real. Yeah, I mean the the dairy cheese industry is still well over a hundred billion dollars a year in sales, um, but plant based cheese is coming up fast on those heels, um, and so they anticipate by the end of twenty twenty four, global sales for plant based cheese will be nearing the four billion dollar mark. So it means that a lot of people are trying to do a lot of things very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> And whoever gets to the CFIA and can launch a product <laughs> is the one is the one that's going to stick around. <laughs> it's like that's a fun game to play. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming, and really appreciate your time. Okay. Thanks for having me on the show, Max. Finally, we'll leave you with the wise words of today's episode. Maintaining calmness, like not getting too emotionally excited on either end of that scale, not getting too happy or too down. Happiness is very fleeting and I don't kind of trust that sensation when it comes. So I always try to seek to ground any of those feelings, but regardless of what end of the, the roller coaster they're on. <laughs> <laughs>